When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We want the world to know that President Putin is trying to gaslight NATO. Russia has more forces on the border of Ukraine than the entire United States military has in Europe. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The amount of job openings is at an historic high. The unemployment rate back down under 4%. We have a great opportunity on a bipartisan budget. We're about 95% of the way there. Bloomberg Sound On with... Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. This is not the day we expected in Washington. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics, driven today by two breaking stories. As Russia claims to pull back forces along the Ukrainian border, and while here in Washington, Republicans pull the plug on a scheduled vote for President Biden's nominees to the Federal Reserve. We will discuss both with Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican from Tennessee, former ambassador to Japan. He serves on both foreign relations and the banking committees and with us in just a moment. Later, our conversation with William Courtney, senior fellow at Rand Corporation, former ambassador to Kazakhstan on a predictable 24 hours in the Russia-Ukraine standoff. Our panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, along with John Sidalidis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors. We thought we'd be reporting the vote tally right now uh, from the Senate Banking Committee. But as you've been hearing on Bloomberg, votes on President Biden's five nominees to the Federal Reserve never happened after Republicans on the panel refused to show up in opposition of Sarah Bloom Raskin, who the president, of course, nominated for vice chair of supervision. That starved Democrats of a quorum. No vote. Banking Committee Chair Sherrod Brown was not happy. But instead of showing up to work to do their jobs, Republicans have walked out on the American people. We're joined now on Sound On by a Republican member on that committee, Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee. Welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. It's great to be back with you, Joe. Thank you very much. Well, it's been quite a day. You're your chairman on the banking committee. Uh, Senator Sherrod Brown says Republicans were hiding instead of voting. Why not just stay in the hearing and vote no? Well, we have uh, a nominee that's not ready to be voted on at this point in time. And that's holding up the process for everyone else. Uh, Chairman Brown knows this. Uh, he wanted to put it through anyway, but we've got a nominee named Sarah Bloom Raskin who has got some very serious charges against her regarding the typical Washington, D.C. revolving door game that gets played here time and time again. Uh, the charges are very serious. We've asked for clarification on it. Rather than do that, um, Chairman Brown's trying to force this uh, to, to basically ram it through. And I think we're going to have to wait and actually get the questions answered that we've asked before we agree to move on her. 
it's unfortunate that he's held the other nominees hostage because we are ready to vote on them. Well, it's interesting. The chairman says he met with the ranking member with the with the Republican leader, Pat Toomey, to review answers. He says they were complete. The White House says she's answered everything and provided answers to your questions. So just to go a step deeper, Senator, help us understand what what question or questions has Sarah Bloom Raskin not answered? Well, here's the here's the situation. Uh, You probably know that uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin served in the Obama administration as deputy secretary of Treasury. While she was there, she signed an ethics pledge to prevent this sort of revolving door lobbying. And just four months after she left the Treasury, she joined the board of a company called Reserve Trust. Yes, and we have, by the way, talked about that quite a bit on this program. So we're, we're pretty plugged in here with the idea of the Federal Reserve master account. But is there missing information? Has she refused to answer questions about that? Yes, she's refused on a number of occasions to answer questions. And um, I, I think that these are questions that are, that are very severe. I mean, it's a revolving door situation where the, the company is denied the master account before she comes on the board. And after she places a call to the Federal Reserve Bank there in Kansas City, after becoming a board member, suddenly, lo and behold, uh, the, the account is granted. No other company situated like this has had one since, none before. Mm. A very unique situation that netted her nearly $1.5 million at the end of the day. The Reserve Trust founder did vouch for her. As you know, the Kansas City Fed said discussions with uh, directors on issues like this are not unusual. Uh, Even John Tester said he was satisfied with what he was able to read after looking into this matter. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll ask you again, is this, Senator, is this a problem of ideology or transparency? Is this a missing answer on a piece of paper or, or an answer that you disagree with? Well, there, there are more than 35 questions where her answers provided were blanket, I do not recall or I'm not aware in response to questions on this. So we have not gotten to the bottom of this and we need more information. And until we do, I'm not prepared to vote on her. Okay. If, if she answered those questions that you just mentioned, uh, whether or not you agreed with the, the answers, would you vote to confirm if the, if, the, if the sheet was complete, sir? It depends on what the answers are. Okay. How would you vote to confirm on the other four nominees? Would you vote to confirm them today, as you mentioned, if Democrats set aside the Raskin nomination, allows you to move forward with the rest? Yes, I actually put out a release today um, that, that I would vote for uh, several of the other nominees that are, that are in question. I think that um, you know, Chairman Powell and Vice Chairman Brainerd, I'm prepared mm-hmm. to vote for as well. Also, Philip Jefferson. So Lisa Cook is not going to make the cut for you. Not for me. She's a very qualified person in her field, but it doesn't seem relevant for what I'm looking for uh, in terms of a federal reserve governor. Does that have to do with monetary policy or philosophy beyond that, Senator? Well, uh, I think her training is mostly in the area of social science, if you look at it. And uh, what we do need are people that are familiar with monetary policy and and, and well-versed in that arena. Um, But we are not looking for people that are, you know, talking about social science and social engineering, and I certainly don't want to see that type of work with the Fed. The Fed has a narrow mandate, as you know. It's price stability, it's full employment. And there's been so much talk uh, with several of these nominees about using the massive powers of the Fed. I mean, these are very blunt instrument tools and using them to accomplish policy objectives. That's the realm of the Congress. These are things that should be legislated, not given to uh, independent, uh, unelected you know, federal, federal governors who have very, very long terms. It's a great concern. Bringing uh, more diverse voices to the Federal Reserve was something that President Biden had promised. Is that a, an idea and principle that you support? 
in, in principle, I have no objection to that at all. But what I don't want to see is a, basically an abdication of the Federal Reserve's mandate and to abuse the Federal Reserve to contort it. Uh, and also make clear in the, in, the, in the hearings, I don't want to see the leadership of the Federal Reserve abdicated as well. You saw what happened at the FDIC. Uh, I've asked several of the nominees if uh, they would support that type of behavior, meaning a, essentially a coup d'etat that took place uh, at the FDIC. I don't think that's going to happen here. I, I'm confident in my discussions with the with uh, Chairman Powell, with, yeah. with uh, Vice Chairman Brainerd, that that would not happen. Do you have a sense then when we might get a vote on these uh, nominees, Senator, or, or are you waiting for Democrats uh, for the for Chair Brown to make the next move? It could be as early as tomorrow. If, if uh, Chairman Brown would just uh, remove uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin from the list, we're ready to vote. But that's that's your demand. Is there a chance Democrats could change the Senate's rules and confirm her anyway? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what the appetite is for that type of thing. We saw what happened last time when the Democrats tried to change the Senate rules with filibuster. It did not work, and I think it turned out very poorly for them. I'd like to ask you about the standoff with Russia, Senator, as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee. Do you believe what you're hearing from Vladimir Putin today? Is Russia de-escalating? Well, the the number of troops moved still is is small relative to the total. Uh, Certainly, I I think we would all like to see a de-escalation, but... uh, I think the the jury's still out on what Vladimir Putin's doing, and only Vladimir Putin seems to know what he's doing. Yeah. Um, so how do you know? Give us a sense of how do you verify a pullback? What what would satisfy you? Is it numbers of troops? Is it uh, or more of a, a verbal commitment from from Vladimir Putin? Well, it would be troop counts. It would be a it would be a reduction in cyber attacks. There are many things that are underway right now that need to be addressed and need to be moved in a different direction. President Biden uh, said just a short time ago as he addressed the American people, quote, an invasion remains distinctly possible, unquote. Do you agree with that? I think President Biden is getting uh, the, the latest intel possible right now in the situation. So I have no reason to quarrel with him on that possibility. Yeah. So this remains a very dangerous situation. Uh, I, I agree with you, uh, Joe. I think you're right. We saw the German chancellor meeting yesterday in Moscow. Uh, what happens next? What is this? administration? What does this White House need to do to give Vladimir Putin an off-ramp if it's not a military option we're looking at? Well, uh, there are several opportunities here for the White House to actually show strength and resolve. One thing I'd like to see the White House do is actually step up uh, our own energy independence. If you think about what happened after the Biden administration came into office, they killed the Keystone XL pipeline, they stopped uh, you know, drilling on federal lands. The things that they've done have had the impact of dramatically increasing the price of energy worldwide. Russia is the number two producer of energy in the world. This has been a windfall to Vladimir Putin. Yeah. If America would get back in business uh, with an all-of-the-above strategy and not wage war on the oil and gas industry, I think that would have a significant economic impact uh, around the world in terms of lo- lowering global prices. I think it would have a significant impact on Vladimir Putin, too, in terms of reducing the leverage that he has, not only over his neighbors, but the rest of the world. Are you disappointed that there apparently will not be a sanctions bill uh, coming out of the U- U.S. Senate? We're hearing reports uh, now that Chairman uh, Menendez is looking for a non-binding resolution uh, that, that that's the way the, the, the upper chamber makes its mark on this? I think there's been a great deal of discussion between uh, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch on this. Uh, I know there's a lot of frustration right now. And the main point of contention has to do with the timing of the imposition yeah. of actions. And, you know, what I would, what I would have liked to have seen uh, would have been the early imposition of sanctions to actually go beyond words. I think Vladimir Putin's heard enough tough talk 
I think demonstrating American resolve would have been possible by implementing sanctions early. The most obvious is the Nord Stream 2. It's been sitting right there, yet the Biden administration has waived it. Uh, we, we put that sanction, that's a congressionally mandated sanction on Russia. We have handed Vladimir Putin a massively useful geopolitical weapon with Nord Stream 2. And yet this comes down to timing, Senator. It's got to be incredibly frustrating for you. I mean, Chairman Menendez said just two weeks ago you were on the one-yard line. What happened? Uh, I haven't been involved in the negotiations directly between Senator Risch and, and Senator Menendez. Yeah. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for both of them. And I think both of them have our nation's best interests at heart, and they don't want to see the situation escalate any further. But obviously they have a philosophical difference on this. Sounds like you'd, you'd if be in favor of the Treasury just going ahead and, 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 and imposing sanctions now. Well, I, here's what I'm in favor of at this point, and that is President Biden following through on what he said. If Vladimir Putin does act, uh, and it sounds like that possibility is imminent, that he's going to impose extremely tight sanctions. I, yeah. I don't want to see another situation where a red line is drawn and then we back away from it. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican from Tennessee, it's great to have you back on Sound On. Thanks for your insights today on Bloomberg. Thank you, Joe. It's always good to be with you. Coming up, we assemble our panel with Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shenzano today, along with John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist, at Trilogy Advisors, we've got a lot to talk about. On the fastest hour in politics, thanks for being with us. We'll check traffic and markets on the way. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Headline on the terminal, Republican stall Fed nominee votes over Raskin opposition. If you just heard our conversation with Senator Bill Haggerty of the Banking Committee, you know why. GOP senators deny quorum on banking panel I read on the terminal. Also, of course, considering Powell, Brainerd, Cook, Jefferson, nobody clears today. As Republicans on the committee block votes on the five picks, not happy about this idea of Sarah Bloom Raskin uh, being vice chair for supervision. But as we heard from Senator Haggerty, he wasn't a fan of Lisa Cook either. So we've got a lot to talk about with the panel here, and we're going to sort of go through our two main themes over the course of the hour with some smart minds. We also have the matter of Russia and Ukraine to deal with, as we discussed with the senator as well. So we assemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano is here along with John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors with us for the hour here on Bloomberg Sound On, a consultant to the State Department. Great to have on this day of days. Jeannie, I'll start with you on the Fed. 
This is not what we expected. Who says Washington is always scripted? This is an interesting maneuver by Republicans. How does it end, though? Uh, Do we still end up with the same nominees being confirmed? You know, I don't think we know yet. And when we talked yesterday, we said this could be tight and it could be tense. And I think it went well beyond what we what we yeah, imagined. Yeah, a boycott. Yeah, a boycott that sort of nobody saw coming. But I thought what was fascinating listening to your discussion with the senator was while the Republicans are boycotting over this potential relationship she may have had with this company, and we've talked about that. You know, the fact is there's no evidence to back up any sort of special treatment that she would have given to them. But the reality seems to me, and you heard it in that interview you had with him, that their real concern is the fact that she may go well beyond the Fed's mandate. And she was trying to tamp that down during the hearing. They said she didn't do it successfully. That seems to be the sticking point here. They don't want the Fed mandate increased the way they think she will. So she's making policy from the Fed. And they're using this to slow things down. This is also why she agreed to an expanded uh, ethics agreement, John. When you hear uh, the chairman, Sherrod Brown, say we will get her confirmed, we are not separating her vote from the other Fed picks. What do you see happening over the next couple of days? Is this going to be a standoff now or, or does Raskin really need to provide more information? Whether it's a standoff or a showdown between uh, the Congress and the White House, it remains to be seen. I, I think Jeannie's absolutely right. We, we just don't know how this is going to play out in the days ahead. But my sense is that the Republicans have targeted uh, Ms. Raskin, and uh, they are not going to relent on this. And I think a large part of this is, as the senator mentioned, you know, issues about the, uh, the, the proper functionality of the confirmation process and the references to 36 questions, which she answered, I do not recall or I was unaware. So there's a sense of evasiveness on the part of Republicans regarding Ms. Raskin's responses and also obviously the fintech firm assistance and how that played out. But I think there's a larger ideological issue that's playing out here also, Joe. And that's uh, the issue of her potentially single-minded focus on climate policies. And the Republicans have been talking about the need for neutral regulators, especially Mm -hmm. if she's going to become the vice chair uh, with significant unilateral power to target Wall Street and to target what she might consider to be disfavored industries. So I think there's very great concern that the oil and gas industries of the United States would be unfairly targeted by someone with an ideological bias as opposed to a neutral perspective on proper Wall Street regulation. Well, Republicans have certainly said that. She's done her best to to ease their concerns about it. But, Jeannie, we've seen other nominations obviously go bust before. We saw the Omarova more recently. uh, uh, that, That was a withdrawal. Is that what Republicans are trying to force here? You know, if you're not going to break them up, you're going to have to change one of these names. This is the downside of doing five at once. Yeah. And I think, you know, because the Democrats are trying to do five at once, it suggests that they've known all along this was going to be a problem because the other four, by almost every count, at least the three seem to get through fairly easily. It's Cook a little bit less clearly and then certainly Raskin. So I think Democrats have known that for a long time. And let's not forget, you know, if, you know, and this is a big if, if the Demo- if the Republicans rather stayed away and they tried to put Powell's nomination up with Elizabeth Warren, he mm-hmm. would not get what he needs to go through <laughs> either. So, you know, this creates enormous complications for even people who are widely yeah. supported. You are right, Jeannie. Senator Mark Warner is the one who said this last evening. 
Uh, we played sound of him describing the need to do this as a package, essentially. But, John, that was because of uh, expected trouble on the floor when it went to the full Senate, not in the committee. Was leadership here caught off guard? Did Pat Toomey pull a fast one on Sherrod Brown? I don't know exactly what kind of communications the senators have had uh, on this. Uh, my own sense is that they've been hinting at very, very strong reluctance to see Ms. Raskin go through under current conditions. Uh, the Republicans are obviously very unhappy with both uh, the prospect of her being on uh the Fed Reserve, but also the way in which he has handled this uh, confirmation process. But let me add yeah. one more thing, Joe, here, if yeah, I may. Yeah, we have just a minute. Yep. Um, even if she were to be approved out of committee, there's no guarantee that uh, the Democrats will hold fast as a block and go for a tiebreaker. Well, that's right. The vice president. Uh, there may be one or two Republicans that may decide to approve her nomination, but it's very difficult to see how Senator Joe Manchin, and again, you know, we come back to Manchin yep. and the fact that Joe Biden is in the teens in terms of popularity in West There's Virginia. an enormous he amount of uncertainty here on the floor, just like the White House. in committee. John, but thank given- you. We'll be back with John and Jeannie up next. Russia, Ukraine on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. We have some simple questions about the Russia-Ukraine standoff today. Like, should we believe what we're hearing? Claims of a Russian pullback made the markets feel pretty good this morning, but... There are many skeptics, and for good reason. We'll discuss next steps ahead with Ambassador William Courtney, adjunct senior fellow at the RAND Corporation and former special assistant to the president for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Busy day at the White House. I guess they all are lately, uh, but we did get an update on the schedule about halfway through the day that the president would be addressing the nation on what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, generating the story you see on the terminal. Biden says threat to Ukraine remains awaits Russia pullback. He spoke from the East Room. Indeed, said it remains possible Russia will invade Ukraine because its troops remain in what he called a threatening position. He said, though, the U.S. has not verified Moscow's claims that it has withdrawn some forces. That was the headline we began the day with in the pre-market. Interpreted, of course, as good news. And the president, you know, stuck with the optimistic tone as well on diplomacy. Here he is today. President Putin and I agreed that our team should continue to engage toward this end, along with our European allies and partners. Yesterday, the Russian government publicly proposed to continue the diplomacy. I agree. We should give the diplomacy every chance to succeed. He also said he agreed with a declaration that diplomacy is still possible, vowing that he will not sacrifice basic principles, that countries, including Ukraine, have the right to keep their own borders. We get into it now with Ambassador William Courtney, adjunct senior fellow at the RAND Corporation, a conversation I've been looking forward to. He served as ambassador to Kazakhstan from 1992 to 94, Georgia from 95 to 97, appointed by President Bill Clinton to serve as special assistant to the president for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia. So just the person that we are looking forward to talking with. Ambassador, thank you for being with us. Are you buying the, the new tone and this talk of pullback withdrawal from Vladimir Putin? Joe, it's still too soon to tell. Uh, 
being able to observe actual movements on the ground sometimes takes a little time. Yeah. All of the all of the sensors that the U.S. and others in the West have will be focused on that. It is possible that the Russians have decided to pull back. You know, in some sense, the Kremlin has taken Russia out on a limb, somewhat akin to what Nikita Khrushchev did in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when you go so far out on a limb, there's not much scope for diplomacy. You either have to make a decision to retreat or mm-hmm. to go in. Mm-hmm. And I think Moscow is at that point right now. So this is still the inflection point. You don't think necessarily... Uh, this has gone one way or the other. And I, I guess my question for you is, how do you quantify withdrawal? What does it look like? Is it the number of units, the number of troops that are moving, or is there more to it? Uh, so we may be at an inflection point, or the Kremlin may already have decided, and we just can't yet observe Understood. signals, visible signals of that. Uh, so it would be a matter of troops moving away. Some of the troops that are partially withdrawing, as Putin said today, are going not too far away to their home bases. If we see troops from the far east of Russia or the central part of Russia going home, that may be a better sign. What did Germany's chancellor say to Vladimir Putin today? I know you were not in the room. But what seemed to happen that changed the tone of this conversation? It's not clear that what he said would have changed the tone although certainly he would have probably given Putin some bad news on Nord Stream 2 pipeline and other issues. Germany is the most important European economic partner for Russia, so they pay careful attention. Uh, But I think the fact that the NATO, the United States, Ukraine have stood fast throughout this, have made no concessions whatsoever, has forced the Kremlin now to think harder about its choices. I know this has been asked a couple of times recently, and I get different answers. Has Vladimir Putin succeeded in unifying NATO? Has he made the alliance stronger than it would have been otherwise? Yes. Well, he's definitely done that. He's increased the threat. And he's also caused the Europeans to think a lot harder about how much they want to depend on Russian gas in the future. Yeah. U.S. LNG tankers are steaming over there in larger numbers. Europeans might get a little bit more used to U.S. LNG and buy less gas from Russia. Well, it does help when you have the Biden administration looking for new sources of gas for you, right? Don't you suspect something is lined up in, in, in just in case when you see the Qataris in the Oval Office? Uh, well, that, that's quite possible. Uh, but this, this for Russia, this episode is not costless. They could lose long-term market share in Europe because of these uh, geopolitical antics. Well, it's an interesting idea because the the narrative seems to be, well, Putin already won because he's got everyone's attention. He's got world leaders shuttling around the world, chasing after him, trying to prevent war. But, but Ambassador, you're suggesting that Vladimir Putin may have already lost. I think he's lost already. Uh, What we saw today with President Biden, President Biden sounded very much like President Reagan in how he handled this issue. Europe is completely unified on heavy sanctions. That would be applied. The Ukrainians have made no concessions whatsoever. And now Putin has faced the prospect of a war which would devastate the Russian economy. Lower living standards could bring insolvency to some of its major banks or uh, retreat. And the retreat option, while has some costs, and the Kita Khrushchev was tossed out of office in part because yeah. he retreated in Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Putin may think that you know, maybe that's not so bad. You were ambassador to Kazakhstan. Should any former Soviet state be nervous right now about Vladimir Putin's intentions? 
all of the former Soviet states are nervous about uh, the Kremlin intentions. Uh, but Ukraine and Georgia have been the subject of most of the Kremlin's, uh, let's say, attention that has been unwelcome. Uh, Kazakhstan has had a cooperative relationship with Russia all the way through, and that seems likely to continue. What's the off-ramp then tonight for Vladimir Putin, Ambassador? Retreat. Retreat. There's no room for diplomacy to speak of. We're not going to be negotiating anything major in the next couple of days or hours. Mm-hmm. They have to make a decision to retreat or not, and that's that's the choice. There you have it from someone who has been there. Ambassador William Courtney of Rand Corporation, former ambassador to Kazakhstan, with us with great insights this evening on Bloomberg Sound On. We'll reassemble the panel and extend this conversation Jeannie Shanzano is with us tonight, along with John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors, advisor to the State Department and advisor tonight to this program, the fastest hour in politics. We'll check markets and traffic next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It was in the news conference with the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, that Vladimir Putin made the news, got everybody feeling so good about themselves. Quote, we want to resolve this issue now, right now or in the near future, through negotiations, peaceful means, unquote. Kumbaya. This following three hours of talks with Mr. Scholz. And of course, uh, only the latest, as I read on the terminal, in an intense series of efforts by Western leaders to ease confrontation amid warnings, Russia preparing to invade its neighbor. I mean, you'd think Vladimir Putin's getting tired of all the company. We're running out of really long tables. But we still don't have an ability to verify withdrawal. And I wonder how our panel feels about it. Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano is here and spending this hour with John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors. Let's get started on this, John. When you heard this news this morning, did you roll your eyes or did you think it was a turning point? I don't think it was a turning point at all. And I'm trying very hard here, Joe, to just keep my eyes focused on the long term perspective over here. And I think we do ourselves immense danger by looking at this on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I don't actually believe that Vladimir Putin has ever intended to overrun the entire country of Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, The forces actually are insufficient. He probably only has one quarter of what's required for an actual invasion of Ukraine. 
according to the military strategists that I'm speaking with. But what is happening here is a very effective campaign of bluff, blackmail and intimidation to force Ukraine to relent to Putin's political demands of never joining NATO, of becoming essentially a Finlandized neutral country between Russia and Western Europe, and to ensure political autonomy for the ethnic Russian-speaking population of southeastern Ukraine. And that's what he's focused on. And so far, I think he's done a very, very effective job of galvanizing Washington and Europe to deal with him on his terms. And um, contrary to what the ambassador said, I think Putin is going to win considerably when this whole process is played out. Because of what he already has or what he has yet to accomplish? Well, he has yet to accomplish the formal autonomy for the the Russian enclaves inside of Ukraine, the ones that are controlled by the separatists. You see him gaining uh, that. To achieve, quote unquote, peace, they're going to have to come to terms with, for instance, the Minsk II agreements, which the Ukrainian government agreed to in 2015 and has not implemented. And that specifically calls for decentralization, political autonomy and special elections for the ethnic Russian majority populations in southeastern Ukraine. So effectively, Kiev will lose political control over those right. parts of the country. And As by we saw the lower chamber vote today. NATO, he establishes a massive land buffer between Western Russia and the NATO alliance. Yeah. All right, Jeannie, where are you on this? Uh, the markets seem to feel pretty smart this morning. Numbers turned higher. People said, yes, this thing is finally cooling off. Maybe this is a turning point. People put money behind those bets. Were they wrong? You know, I don't think we know. And, and that's the reality. Um, we've seen troops move, but that doesn't mean they are retreating. And what we also saw today were significant cyber attacks in the Ukraine on mm-hmm. their Ministry of Defense, on their central banks, on their armed forces. And so those are what we heard from many experts were going to be either a precursor to some kind of incursion, whether major or minor, to John's point, or it could be not even done by Russia. It could be done by separatists as a way mm-hmm. to give Russia cover to maneuver in Ukraine. So th- there's a whole host of things happening. And I don't think we can assume that, you know, we are at a point where, you know, Vladimir Putin is by any, you know, stretch of the imagination retreating. And I was fascinated by the ambassador saying he's left now only with retreat, because yeah, right. if that's the case, there is an enormous danger in foreign policy when you get into humiliation. We were supposed to be providing some kind of off-ramp. If we have left him with that, which I'm not sure we have, but if that's it, the humiliation is danger in and of itself. Humiliation or painted into a corner. Either way, John, it is dangerous. What should the U.S. do if, if we do get the sense that Vladimir Putin has overreached? He wants to start pulling back. He wants to save face. Is it possible? Well, first, I don't know that pulling back is a retreat. Uh, We tend to forget here, Joe, that uh, one month before this massive buildup of forces, Russia had 200,000 troops massed across the border from Ukraine and Belarus for what are the annual ZAPAD, Z-A-P-A-D, military exercises. Mm. And there wasn't a peep out of Washington or our media about a force that was 60 percent larger than the one that's currently massed around Ukraine. So uh, I don't think Vladimir Putin has to call it a retreat or face any type of humiliation. He can send back those forces whenever he chooses to on land and at sea. And let's not forget, he can choke off the Ukrainian economy anytime yeah. simply by the deployment of the Russian Navy in the Black Sea.
That's true. Not to mention these cyber attacks, John. At, at, at mm-hmm. what point do we consider that an act of war? If he's turning the lights off and, and destroying the economy in Ukraine through cyber, how is it any different? Well, that's the most difficult part about cyber warfare. Uh, you can conduct a number of activities with minimal fingerprints. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, that Putin is going to want to have any fingerprints on any of this, but everyone will know that this is essentially Moscow-directed one way or the other. And as Jeannie just mentioned, this hybrid war has already begun, and I think it's going to continue with potential attacks on power plants, mobile communications, transportation systems. The goal here is to destabilize and demoralize Ukrainian society and psychologically exhaust the military and the government and have them go back to NATO and have them relent on demands that Ukraine can meet coming from Putin. Does that scenario, Jeannie, that's uh, that's a scary thought. Does that demoralize NATO coming from this point of unity here? I don't know how long it takes to to accomplish what John is talking about, but there there is the potential for exhaustion. There is. And let's not forget, this is what the Ukrainians themselves have been saying they were afraid of, this this hybrid cyber warfare, yep. where the incursions would be first first cyber, then they would be minor incursions back and forth across the border. And that's what people are afraid in the Ukraine we may be seeing the beginnings of. We've been focused here in the U.S. to a large extent on a massive incursion and a takeover, which is not what the Ukrainians have been saying that they were worried about. And of course, they've been at this with Russia for many, many years now. So for them, this is the middle of something, not just the beginning. And to your point, mm-hmm. how long does NATO stay together? Particularly, you look at Germany and Schultz there today and the issue of oil, which is a huge challenge for Germany. This is for sure. John, how long can uh, Vladimir Putin keep forces where they are or be, or continue increasing them before it begins to, well, to there cost, is a cost too much? I mean, obviously, in terms of logistics and supply lines to maintain yeah forces that are off base, there is a cost. But keep in mind that, uh, especially with the increase in the price of oil and gas over the last year to year and a half, Russia's uh, sovereign wealth reserves have gone up astronomically. It's about $600 billion today that he has in reserves. So I'm not even sure that sanctions will be very harmful to the Russian economy. I want to ask you about sanctions. This actually came up today, and it's just kind of amazing. And we, we mentioned it quickly with Uh, with uh, Senator Haggerty, because it's his foreign relations committee that saw this happen. Two weeks ago, Chairman Bob Menendez said they were at the one-yard line. He appeared on national television with the ranking member just to say they were close to a breakthrough. It's fallen apart. Now it's a non-binding resolution. John, what kind of a statement is that about the, the politics in the upper chamber? Well, it's one that demonstrates a lack of success uh, and a lack of integrity in working together across party lines and with the White House in a coherent manner. And uh, this really should have been prepared from from quite a while ago. As Jeannie mentioned, uh, this Ukraine war goes back to 2014. And the idea that we've been unprepared for this type of an attempt by Vladimir Putin to use military and hybrid cyber warfare in order to secure his political objectives really, I think, damages Washington's stature on the world stage. We, we should have known something along these lines was coming, just as we know that China is preparing to one day potentially invade Taiwan. Yeah. And the idea that we don't have a game plan ready for that, I think, China's is an equal failure on the part of Washington right now. Our last minute here, uh, Jeannie, the fact that this sanctions bill fell apart in the Senate, should, should Joe Biden, should the president be 
uh, much more detailed and specific about the sanctions the Treasury itself could be about to impose. He should. And, and you know, it, it is part and parcel of what we've seen out of the Senate. You know, the one yard line very, very quickly lengthens yeah. into 100 yards. Yeah, and that's where we are now. And so the presidents before Biden and Biden has to realize they cannot just turn to Congress. He's going to have to take as decisive action as he can out of the executive branch. Yeah. And that means being detailed on what he can do and what the Treasury can do, whether Congress acts or not, because in all likelihood with a 50-50 Senate, they may not act. Great conversation with Jeannie Shanzano, as always, along with John Sidalitis today. Thank you to both of you for the insights. February is Black History Month, and we want to hear from Renita before we get into news at the top of the hour. Every day this month, celebrating significant moments in U.S. Black history. Here's Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1968, conductor Henry J. Lewis becomes the first African-American to lead a major symphony orchestra. He became conductor and musical director of the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, which is a nationally recognized orchestra. From an early age, Lewis had a love for music and symphony orchestra. At 16 years old, he joined the Los Angeles Philharmonic and became the first black instrumentalist in a major symphony orchestra. Later on in 1989, Lewis would become the principal conductor of the Netherlands Radio Symphony, a Dutch radio orchestra. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Another installment, and so will we, on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.